What is good, everybody? I hope y'all had an amazing week. If you're just joining us, we are running through Ephesians. And I actually, I'm, I'm honestly really surprised by how much uh, I'm, I'm learning through this letter. Ephesians was honestly one of those letters that kind of just seemed straightforward. It, it, it felt like one of those biblical texts that really didn't have much nuance or really anything to dive deep into it. It felt like everything that needed to be said was just on the surface. So just a quick little read. You can go, oh, cool. I got what I needed and you can move on. But I I was wrong. <laughs> I was very, very wrong. And honestly, I guess that's what I deserve because anything involving Paul is not simple and straightforward. But if this is your first time listening into this series or to the podcast, um, I highly, highly recommend that you go back and listen to the episodes that came before this because what Paul does in this letter, which is a little bit different from his other writings, is he has a lot of run-on thoughts. And these thoughts, it's almost like every single thing that comes before and after it is all connected and you have to understand what comes before and after in order to understand what Paul is saying in that current moment. So if you were to just jump into this current episode and try and understand what's going on, you're going to be really, really lost. And you're going to miss the big meta narrative that Paul is building to this letter. And I don't want that to happen because even I am kind of getting confused and lost on what Paul is tying everything into and how every little thing that he's writing from the middle to end of chapter one going into chapter two is so heavily connected His thought process is just one streamline. And unfortunately, the chapter breaks makes us think that, oh, it's a new chapter, which means this is a new thought, a new subject. But no, no, no. This was written on a a scroll. And so for Paul, all of these thoughts are just flowing right from one to the next to the next. There's no chapter breaks. So I highly recommend listening to those episodes before we hop in. But we are starting in chapter two, and we are going to get through four verses today. And there is a lot of connecting that Paul does, a lot of very, very deep theology that is going on here. So I want us to take our time, really break these down. So like we always do, we're going to read through the verses that we're looking at today, and then we're going to break them down one by one. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, I'm reading from the ESV. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So back to verse 1. And the first part of verse 2, I'll read it again. Paul says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. So it's it's not easy doing these studies, at least through Ephesians, where we stop after each and every verse because what Paul's doing here is he, he's writing run-on sentences in this letter. Go look at chapter 1. All the way through chapter 2 here. Um, Our English translations will put periods, but in the original Greek, it's just one complete run-on sentence. And I think the reason why is because what Paul is doing with the run-on sentences is every single thought that Paul is, is writing down, every single one connects to what is before and what is after it. 
It's like a chain of events. For instance, the end of chapter one, Paul had this very long list of events that he hoped would follow from his prayer that the believers would be filled with the wisdom and knowledge of God. We went over this last week. Started in verse 15 all the way down to verse 23. And, and from his prayer that these believers would be filled with the wisdom and knowledge of God, he hoped that from that knowledge they would know the hope that they have. And from that hope, that their hearts would then be enlightened, which would lead them to knowing the inheritance that God has for them. And by knowing of that inheritance, they would come to recognize God's almighty power displayed through his incarnation and his events on the cross that placed him far above all rulers and authorities and all powers in every name. For Paul, this is all one complete chain of events that is so utterly important that he prayed and prayed and prayed that the believers would get the first step which was the knowledge of God that then naturally leads to all the occurring events. And that was his hope from his prayer in chapter one, that all those things would happen. But now he explains further at the beginning of chapter two, why he is so adamant about this prayer, why it is so important that the followers of Christ would have the wisdom and the knowledge of God that then leads to all of the good things that follow. And the reason is, because before Christ and without this wisdom and knowledge from God, we can easily slip back into the state that we were in before. A state where, as Paul says in verse 1, we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. Paul's thought process here acts like a, a meta narrative on what it takes in order to not turn back to a life of death through our transgressions and sins. And also what it takes is walking through, I would argue, daily the things that Paul prayed for in chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. I mean, I mean, think about it. Let me, let me build my case here. When you fall into sin and transgression, what state is your mind in? What, what thoughts are running through your head? I can guarantee in your moments of sin, and I can speak on this because I too am a human being who has dealt with sin. I can guarantee that in the moment of sin, you and I are not thinking about the glorious riches of God's inheritance that is waiting for us, like Paul prayed for in chapter one. I guarantee that we are not overwhelmed with an enlightened heart in that moment because we have the knowledge of God the very thing that Paul prayed that we would have in chapter one. I guarantee that you are not meditating on the hope that we have in Christ or reflecting on his immeasurable power and grace. The very thing that Paul prayed that we would have in chapter one. These are all things that Paul wants on the believer's hearts and mind 24 7 on repeat, like it's a Saturday night rerun of George Lopez. Paul wants these things to constantly be pervading our every being. Because when we have our heart and our mind being constantly filled with the knowledge and wisdom of God, with the hope that we have in Christ, with the knowledge of the inheritance that God is wanting to give us, with the knowledge that we now serve a king that is above all names, when we are constantly filling our heart and our mind with that, 
it makes it harder and harder and harder to ever turn back to a life of death that we once lived because of our transgressions and sins. This is why this is so important to Paul, and it should be so important to us. Now, Paul does tell us that this life of death that we once walked in through our sins and transgressions, this was one that was following the course of the world. Now, the the world, not just talking about earth in general, but, but the world here is referring to the, the community, the culture, the society that abides by its own moral law that is not founded in biblical morality grounded by God. It, the, the world is referring to those who reject Christ and live their own way. But not, notice what's interesting, though, is that Paul doesn't specify what exactly this world looks like. Now, now later on, he will talk about some of the things that this world does, but he doesn't specify the exact social system or exact morality or any specifics as to what defines the world. And this is interesting to me because as many atheists like to point out, um, you can be morally good, you can have a sense of morality without religion. And this may come to a shock to some of us. And I remember when I first heard this, I was like, that doesn't make any sense because this whole time, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, I've been making the claim that morality has to be grounded in God. Because if morality is not grounded in a objective being, then it would be subjective. And morality would just mean whatever any random person wants it to mean, and that would be a problem. But you can be a morally good person without religion. You can obey and adhere to a vast majority of the moral laws that are set forth in the Bible. Things like don't kill, don't steal, uh, don't commit adultery, uh, don't lie, all, all of these things, right? You can abide by those without being a follower of God. So you can be morally good without religion, but to a degree, they're correct. However, just because you follow some moral goods and you claim that you are doing that apart from an objective standard, that does not mean that you are devoid of transgression and sin. Because biblically speaking, every single one of us have sinned and fallen short. Romans 3, 23 through 25 says this, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, propiti propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, the first part of that sounds nice. Like, like, yo, we're justified by God's grace. Okay, cool. So that means our sins are forgiven. However, verse 25 makes it clear that our sins are forgiven only if we are a part of those who receive it by faith. So this requires faith in Christ. So although there can be those in the world who don't follow Christ, who may not even believe that God exists, 
there may be those in the world that abide by a good moral code. The problem is, is that their sins that all people have committed, their sins will not be forgiven if they lack faith in Christ. So why does it matter then that Paul does not specify what the world means? It matters because for, for Paul, I would, I would argue, anyone, regardless of moral duties, who rejects Christ is of the world. It does not matter how good of a person you are. You could be the most moral person on the planet. You could be an atheist and be the most moral person on the planet. You could follow the morality set forth by God's word better than any other Christian ever could. But if you reject Christ, you are still a sinner. You have committed transgressions. And you will have sins that are not forgiven because you have not put your faith in Christ. For, for Paul here, you are either children of the world or children of God. And as Paul stated back in chapter 1, those who believe in Christ were predestined before time to be adopted into the family of God. So at that moment of adoption, for those who put their faith in Christ, this is where your life of death ends and your life of eternal hope begins and this is the peace that the world is missing because no matter how good the world tries to be no matter how moral the world tries to be no matter how caring and quote-unquote loving the world tries to be it does not matter if they are not adopted into the family of god now check out the rest of verse two here paul says that we were dead in our transgressions and sin Following the course of this world, the rest of verse 2 says, Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's interesting. The prince of the power of the air. Uh, other translations present this more specifically as the devil or Satan. And this makes sense because he is the spirit that is influencing the sin that is taking place. One thing to note is that in the Greek, uh, the word prince here means ruler. Paul says that, that all of us, before we were in Christ, followed this ruler. We followed the ruler of the power of the air. We followed in the steps of Satan. Because think about it. How can Satan be called a prince or a ruler without having loyal subjects. Exactly. Those who are not in Christ are under Satan's control as their leader and prince. And I'm not saying under his control in the sense that he's possessing everyone who's not a follower of Christ, but he most certainly is influencing them. Now, in any other circumstance, this would cause eternal shock in grief because it seems like there is this power that just can't be stopped. But remember what Paul prayed for in chapter 1. And, and like I told you, 
All of this is tied together. <laughs> Read back through chapter 1. All of this is tied together. What he said is that believers would come to know the truth that Jesus is placed, quote, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So Satan is referred to as a prince, because of the reasons we just stated, but he can only be referred to as a prince and nothing more because the title of king is already taken. Paul tells Timothy this much in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15. He's writing to him. He says, Hey, Timothy, you know, keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings, and Lord of Lords. So Paul makes it clear that the sins that come from man results in a following of the world, the same world that is blindly bowing down to Satan, the quote unquote ruler of the air. And this spirit at work, it's at work. And those who are affected, all those who are not in Christ, they're called the sons of disobedience. The sons of disobedience. Remember what I said earlier? You can either be a children of the world or you can be children of God. You can't have both. And for Paul, as he stated in the first chapter, we're adopted. When we're in Christ, we're adopted as God's children. But for those who are in the world, they are the sons of disobedience. They're the children of disobedience. Look at verse 3. Paul says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So what comes from people who are devoid of Christ and are influenced by the power of Satan? Well, you, you get people that live to simply indulge on their fleeting, ever-changing passions and urges. That's the desires of the flesh, but also the desires of their minds. And when this happens, you get people who will do anything they can to satisfy their emotional needs, whether that be sexually, physically motivated, or thoughts and choices that they want to indulge in that go against God. And we often look at the flesh and our bodily desires as the only sinful enterprise that we need to watch out for. But Paul includes the, the the desires of the mind as well. And I think this is really important because a lot of times we think it's just, oh, the fleshly desires of, you know, lust or power or greed, you know, the things that our body just kind of ah, just urges to have. But Paul includes the desires of the mind. And this makes sense because how else do we get to a point in the world where a person thinks it's best to mutilate their body because they feel like the opposite sex in their mind? How else do we get to the point where a culture praises and celebrates the sacrificing of innocent children through abortion simply because a woman has made up her mind that the fetus is not human? When you see all of the various subjective morals that take place in the world, you see why Paul is so adamant that believers would come to have wisdom and knowledge of God because devoid of that knowledge, you are destined to spiral into an ever-changing moral landscape.
that only arises when you divorce God from the fabric of your society. And when this happens, as Paul says, we become children of wrath. Or as the New Living Translation, I think, puts it a little bit better to understand, being subject to God's anger. When we follow in this sinful path, we become subject to God's anger. When we decide to be led by the ruler of the air, Satan, and indulge in our every desire, simply put, we become enemies of God. We become fully subject to his anger and judgment. And I don't know about you, but that is not a place I want to be in. And, and this is the same sentiment that James shares in James chapter 4, verse 4. He's calling them out. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Once again, the results that naturally follow from our rejection of Christ can be avoided and reversed if we cling to what Paul prayed for in chapter 1. Because a true and deep knowledge of God leads to a hope that is found only in Christ. And when we recognize this hope, we understand the inheritance that is given simply from being adopted as his children. But we are not being adopted by just anyone. We are being adopted by the one and only king. We change families because we no longer live under the rule of the prince of the air, being children of wrath, sons of disobedience, because we now live under the rule of the king of the world being children of the inheritance. And we need to know this deeply and, and personally because this knowledge and application of it is the crux of who we are as God's children. And if, and if we do not actively pursue the wisdom and knowledge of God, we will miss out on the hope that we are to have. We'll miss out on the knowledge of the inheritance that we are to receive. We will miss out on an enlightened heart that lets us know that Christ is all-powerful and above all names. And if we miss out on all of this, we are destined to walk in the steps of the world, sinning and following the power of Satan. And that leads to being God's enemy. And that's the very last thing that you would ever want to be. And if that seems like a scary place to be, just know that we do have hope. Because it's not like God has made you his eternal enemy. He's given you such an easy and loving way to change status from being his enemy and being a child of the world, of Satan, to being adopted as God's children. And he has an inheritance waiting for you. He has a love and a forgiveness that is waiting for you. But he does call you to a higher moral standard. He does call you to live in a way that properly images and reflects who he is. And honestly, that is the very least that we could do for him forgiving us and giving us a second chance. I'll see y'all next week.